Welcome to Lost in Revision. All of our content is public domain, literature, fairy tales, and folklore. Our goal is to at least break even to cover our expenses. So any support that you can offer to help us reach that goal helps keep this podcast going and you entertained. All of our music is by Nathan Hubble and is used with his permission. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hey y'all, this is our first discussion of one of our daily reading stories. I was able to leave in more of our off-topic chats since I didn't need to save space for the story reading in the middle. So let us know what you think. Do you enjoy our stories or is it better to stay on topic? We are doing this for you and I already edited out hours of us talking so I can edit more out or leave more in depending on the feedback that you give us. So here we go with our discussion of the Railway Children. If you haven't listened to it, it is available on any podcast app, YouTube, and Patreon. I am joined, as always, by Angel and Polly. Angel is joining us from the Blue Bonnet State. Hi, Angel. How are things? It's actually kind of nice today, and I'm looking forward to the Blue Bonnets actually showing up soon. Sweet. I love Blue Bonnet season. Ugh. It's like one of the only things I miss about Texas. And Polly is joining us from the Irish State. How are things in your neck of the woods, Polly? Wet and rainy, and the irises aren't blooming yet. Mm. Well, it's not the season. It is no. also wet and rainy here in Puerto Rico. Oh, it's insane rain. It's crazy. So much rain. Every day rain for weeks. I feel like I'm in some kind of movie where the bad guy's controlling the weather. That is not my image of Puerto Rico in my brain. It's not my image of Puerto Rico living here for the last five years. <laughs> it's not normal kind of scary with global warming implications i live in the swamp so wet is pretty much the norm i like swamps swamps but the villains are still controlling the state (laughs) well that's true i would be i'd be the hag and the witch fighting them for that point (laughs) i'd be the one giving the heroes the tools to defeat them (laughs) we need a story where you can be the swamp witch A story about a swamp witch. I'm always a swamp witch. (laughs) I don't need a special story for that. (laughs) All right. So why don't you get us started with the cultures that this story developed in? Okay. The story is set in late 19th century England. Starts out with a middle class family living in London who fall on hard times when the father is accused of heinous crimes and taken away to prison. The mother has to sell everything dismiss her domestic help and move her children to a small country home in Yorkshire where she will make a living for them writing columns for papers, short stories and poems or whatever she can sell. You really think that they were middle class? I mean, with they had multiple servants and 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 all of the amenities. Well, they didn't have that many servants though. Yeah, they had like a maid and a cook. <laughs> I need that. In the late 1900s, It was pretty normal for an average middle-class family to have a maid and a cook. You know, if they were a little more well-to-do, they might have two maids or the father might have a valet. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think they were upper middle class, but they were not part of the extremely wealthy. They were, they were the really, really comfortable. I guess I always just read the stories about the really, really poor people. (laughs) (laughs) stories about people with maids never really interested me (laughs) yeah well at the time it wasn't as expensive to have domestic help as it would be to have domestic help now i guess this family got interesting on accident (laughs) (laughs) this story hit home for me in a lot of ways um 
there were sections where I probably got very teary-eyed and had to take a break that wouldn't have impacted all readers. I saw so many parallels to my own childhood and how hard my mother worked day and night to keep a roof over our head. She constantly struggled to keep me from seeing how hard she was struggling. And this whole maintaining the image of everything is fine and we give charity but never accept it. All of that that I kept seeing kind of popping up all throughout the story would kind of catch me. Especially the things Bobby would notice and interpret in her mother's eyes. I felt each of those passages way down to my soul. I I don't think I saw a lot of the struggles that my parents had growing up because we were the latchkey generation and I wasn't I wasn't a Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, she tried really hard to hide it from me, but she worked like seven different jobs. And several of them were at home, you know, back before the day of working at home. She kept like four or five books. She was a bookkeeper and she kept books for small companies at home. And so at night she would be working. And just like Bobby, I would come out to the main room for this, that, or the other really quiet. And I would catch her at those moments. And my my mother was always up working at night and, but, but it was mostly making making life for us. She sewed a lot of our clothes and our, our clothes were really interesting because she would get fabric ends and scraps and she would make clothes out of them. And it never, it never occurred to me then how much she was trying to save money because she didn't have to buy us clothes, you know, but our clothes were all unique. So we just thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't have that, you know, plain old off the rack stuff that everybody had. yeah I had a lot of stuff that my mom and and my aunt made for me my favorite outfit for the very longest time was red top and matching red shorts that had white kitty cats on it and like I look at it now I'm like my kids would never never (laughs) and I adored it (laughs) something being sewn for me as a kid was always a special treat because my mom didn't have that much time to do stuff like that. So usually the things that I had that my mom would sew were like special outfits for Easter that would have the little matching bonnet and the jacket and the dress. And I would feel so like, uh, just like the coolest girl in town because I had something my mom had actually taken time to sew. I think I had a more of an appreciation of time spent um, mm. because of how much time my mom didn't have. Yeah, but and and enough about the parents. The story's about the children. <laughs> okay, enough about our pasts living like the railway children after they lost their wealth. Let's get back to the story. <laughs> <laughs> the story's about the children aged 11, 10, and probably around 8 or 9, though the age of the youngest is never given. It starts with the boy's 10th birthday, still in London in May and in sometime the following autumn. Sometime during that period, the older girl has her 12th birthday, so they are quite young. And the whole story is told in that spirit of childlike innocence and honesty, which is only found in people who have never had to grow up and learn to be cynical about the world. They're really not cynical at all. They're not. These children have no cynicism. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if cynicism ran up and bit them on the butt, they would probably turn around and go, oh, it's a cute little dog and pet it and take it home. That's literally <laughs> what happened at the, the barge. Yeah. That's literally like what you just said is what happened at the barge. Cynicism bit them and then they still saved the baby and the dog. Though <laughs> Peter was close. <laughs> Well, you know, he has to be manly. Okay. Yeah, but he was close to leaving. <laughs> he was like, serves them right. <laughs> Just let it burn. <laughs> okay, I'm feeling... I'm fe- <sighs> See, I didn't... I, I did not embrace even a little bit of cynicism until I was like, what? Natalie, I don't think I got cynical at all until I was mid-40s. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. And I think I was cynical at about five. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I, my mom will listen to this and be like, yeah, yeah, seems about right. <laughs> I mean, I could be sarcastic, but that's different from cynical. Oh, no, I was quite cynical. It's a character trait. My family was very afraid that the world was going to eat me up and spit me out because I was always seeing the good in everything and everyone. I was such a Pollyanna. I must have been really annoying. That's how I got my MySpace page (laughs) name. Do you remember remember Sea Turtle Optimist? Yeah. (laughs) I said something. I said something optimistic. I, I don't remember what it was. But my mother turned around. She goes, oh, that's just you, the eternal optimist. And I didn't hear what she said. I thought she said sea turtle optimist. (laughs) So that was, I'm like, that's me, sea turtle optimist. (laughs) That's perfect. But you know what? This age that she's writing about, it is such a great age when you want to combine ideas of the simplistic reactions in a child's view of the world and what seems logical to them while also allowing them to have this ability to grasp bigger concepts that's needed for a really good story. I mean, 12 is the age where you're beginning to wrap your brain around hypothetical thinking. It's it's such a great developmental stage where you can have eyes that naturally begin to notice and process this concept of there being a larger world than just what you've known and seen. And just by the very nature of that transition in the way of thinking and seeing the world, um, it's kind of both a, by its very nature, a tragic and a magical time of life. I mean, I remember feeling so very grown up at 12. That's when I had my first job and earned my own money. And I just thought, this is it. I'm a grown up. Maybe that's why all those different colored hair people in all the animes are that age. You know, I never thought about it. Like at that age, you still have an imagination that's, (laughs) well, my imagination is still just as wild, but I am not neurotypical. (laughs) I don't know. I, I was writing papers on how evolution works based on my own understanding when I was like fourth grade. It was about the time when I started getting, when I started getting cynical about the church, you know, you you hear all these Bible stories when you're a kid and, and, and they're all very nice and clean and sweet and, and bad guys are bad guys and good guys are good guys. And, and 
you know, the world was created in seven days and I get to be about 12 years old and I'm going, hold on, this don't sound right. <laughs> and then you read the actual Bible. <laughs> I guess that's why in some cultures, when you reach 12 years old, that's when you're expected to be a, an adult. Cause that's when those adult thoughts start coming into your head. Mormonism. I think it's eight. Sorry. I'm studying Mormonism right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, mo most cultures generally tie it to, uh, puberty which is more often around 12 yeah yeah all right dragging us back once again to the railway children <laughs> like when bobby starts to think about how it is to miss one's mother she probably never thought about her mother missing their grandmother before she was started thinking about missing her own mother oh yeah that part for me was a real gut punch yeah so what do you think some of the problematic tropes are for these stories? Well, uh, gender ideals. Peter spends a lot of time trying to be manly and grown up, but he doesn't really know how to do that, especially with his father absent and unable to present an example. He gets it wrong a lot. Uh, so do most 10-year-old boys, which is part of why this story works so well after all these years. The character's behavior is very natural. I 100% could see my cousins coming up with that coal mining rationalization and scheme. <laughs> it wasn't just Peter. The doctor was problematic in trying to guide him through the whole broken bone thing. Us poor, poor female animals. <laughs> Big old eye roll. I think I strained myself. It's the late Victorian era, so... There are obvious gender stereotype tropes. Bobby's expected to play nursemaid. Nobody even asks her. And the girls play at making tea while Peter plays at making coal mines. At one point, Bobby wishes to be a boy because she imagines it might be easier or more fun. To be honest, these same gender stereotype tropes were still showing up consistently in children's stories until very recently. They're still showing up in the Republican Party now. <laughs> I myself spent a huge chunk of my childhood trying to be the best little boy ever until I realized I much preferred being a woman. You know, once I hit that 12-year-old eye-opening stage and began really seeing everything my mama was and what she had accomplished, suddenly being a boy seemed like so much less than what I already was. I see. I went the other way. I, I spent... A large portion of my childhood, when you have autism, you have to know all the rules because if you don't know the rules, you can't mask properly. So I spent a lot of my childhood learning all the rules of how to be a girl and how to be a woman and what, what the feminine and the female should be, you know, so that I could present this. And it wasn't until after I was married that it dawned on me that I didn't have to be that. And I didn't have to be a man. I could be, you know, just a dude with boobs. <laughs> I love you as a dude with boobs. <laughs> They're nice boobs. Um, yeah, well, see, my dad really wanted a boy. He got girls. So when I was little, with all the boy cousins out in the country, I really was determined to be the best little boy so I would fit in and then I hit 12 and I realized my mom was so much better than all that sh <laughs> 
And and then I started getting older and being really disappointed with the boys as human beings. Um, and then I was like, nope, girl power. I'm here. <laughs> so I never really wanted to be girly or boy-y. It was just me. I didn't care what other people thought. And I'm still the same. Like, if I'm dressing up as a as a man for a costume, I'll do my best to dress as manly as possible. But if I'm dressing up as a woman, I dress up as female as possible. So I guess if I was to, if I was to actually give myself like a, a, a label, I'd probably be more non-binary than just female, but female is just easier to say and I'm used to it. So I don't, I don't care. Yeah. Somebody asked me how I, how I identify one time of like, what's, what's my pronouns or whatever. I'm like, I, I identify as dude. Yeah. I I just identify as me. I identify as Natalie. That's what I identify as. <laughs> <laughs> so an- another problem is how ridiculously often these kids get into one scrape or another. <laughs> which, which, okay, I have to say for me, seems believable for kids running loose in the countryside without adult oversight. I, I, I ran loose in the countryside my entire childhood without any kind of adult oversight and I didn't get I didn't find adventures. <laughs> I had to make them up. <laughs> that is not true for me. I have so many stories that I'm sure my parents have no clue about. Hi mom. <laughs> That we we were the kids that left the house at sunrise and then came back after the sun was down, except for meal times when we got hungry and just raided everything. And it was we had literal wars between groups of children with with act like spears that had the really long spikes on the plants in Texas tied to the ends of them that we we were stabbing each other and at war and we're serious about this well we avoided the other kids in the neighborhood because i guess we were strange and didn't go to school yeah i didn't have that i was just strange and went to school so i had wars um (laughs) and we we built we built whole, uh, what is it? I had a BMX bike, the dirt bike that I bought with my own money because they were only 50 bucks back then. And did you have the ramp made out of an old piece of plywood and a pile no, of bricks? No, we had this ginormous area behind the house in San Antonio where it was all dirt. And we would we would go out and build the dirt into an entire course for our bikes and jumps and like i i don't know how many broken bones happened it wasn't me but they happened it was insane i mean holy cow like well polly you've got some stories you've died multiple times well, i started out that way <laughs> you can't say that you didn't have these like i fell off a 50 foot cliff and i had parental supervision that day so <laughs> And I, I didn't even break anything. I just, I, I am, I'm almost positive I felt my lung collapse and then reinflate itself. And I've Googled that to see if it's possible. And it is possible. So, but I remember laying at the bottom of that cliff, unable to breathe in. And then all of a sudden I heard a literal popping noise and it went pop. And then I was like, <clears throat> so, so, uh, yeah. 
but you know, I was only bruised, like nothing broke because I landed just flat on my back. I was just lucky. That's what happened to my mother. Oh, yeah? She was rappelling and the, uh, the guy at the top who was spotting her, he leaned back and the rope unhooked. And when he leaned forward, he just went right over the cliff. Oof. And she was, she was already rappelling down. So she was halfway down the cliff and she had scrapes and bruises. That was it. And, and, and afterwards a great fear of heights. <laughs> she she went to climb up on the roof and and couldn't get back down because the world was spinning. After that, I had the the impulse to jump, so I went skydiving, and that was fun. Yeah, statute of limitations and familial protections prevent me from telling all my stories. <laughs> yeah, you haven't heard but a tiny fraction of mine. <laughs> I got to stick to the stories my mom already knows. <laughs> I just, you know, did some garden work and then wandered off into the woods <laughs> to wander around the woods by myself all day. I think I was more like, like Mary <laughs> Linick, just kind of, you know, out in the garden by myself, unsupervised with the woodland creatures, except I didn't have Dickon. <laughs> If I'd had Dick and I might have gotten into more hijinks. <laughs> yeah, we all get in trouble with Dick and. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Natalie interrupting this podcast for this really cool podcast that you might have heard of. It's called Lost in Revision. Yeah, that is us, and we need your help. Podcasting isn't free, but we don't charge for most of our content. That may not be the best business model, but we want everyone to have the opportunity to listen regardless of finances. So if you really like us and you can afford it, go to Patreon and subscribe for only $3 a month to get premium and ad-free content. If you like what you hear but you don't have spare cash, you can still help. Just go and follow us on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and add us on whatever your favorite app is for podcasts. Give us a good rating on all the ones like Spotify and Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. The URL to our link tree is in the show notes. That has links to everything that I just mentioned. All of it would help so much. And now I'll let you get back to the show. Which seems believable for kids running loose in the countryside without adult oversight from what I remember. Yeah, but they saved way too many people for it to be realistic. I mean... If they had gotten into scrapes and almost died, it would be more like what I remember being a child running wild in the countryside. Well, true, but you know, this, there has to be a story going on. <laughs> I have well, plenty of stories, I promise. That's, that's precisely why they did have so many adventures, because it was originally a plot of the week sort of periodical story. So, you know, that explains why they have so many daring and exciting, but brief adventures, one after the end, generally speaking, that many exciting things don't usually happen over the space of a year. It wasn't even a year. Half a year, no matter how precocious a group of children may be. <laughs> oh, maybe not in half a year, but you know. I mean, I could see, I could see all of this happening in their entire childhood. Like if, if that was the time span, I could see it. Yeah. But yeah, I guess with it being a newspaper periodical, I had to read that to get it right. Um, <laughs> so what was your favorite part of the story? 
My favorite part of the story was the barge fire. It's it's one of the more realistic stories. You know, they're just down there and, and they happen to be in the right place at the right time. The lamp tipped over, the barge caught on fire. Oh no, there's a baby. You know, and that the okay, you don't leave a baby alone. But the- <laughs> back then you did though. <laughs> the baby was asleep and she was just running down to the pub for a minute and coming back, and the baby was asleep, and you know, she didn't think there was any danger. If he's in his crib, he's not gonna get out. Maybe he'll cry for a bit. But uh, some some of the stories seem a little bit contrived, like the Russian dissident story. You know, like what are the chances? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know he just happened to show up at their train station, and and their mother just happened to speak French, and and he just happened to speak French also, and you know, and everything just played out perfectly. Well, in <laughs> Europe, in, in Europe, just happening to speak French happens more often than well it does. i mean the kids the kids tried to speak french but their their french was very very bad as a teacher i think my favorite line in the entire story was all three had been taught french at school how deeply they wished they had learned it that <laughs> that is a fantabulous line <laughs> fantabulous indeed <laughs> Yes. yes. You know, all they could do was, you know, a few words, you know, and nobody else in the town spoke it. Um, well, nobody else in the town had had the education that the mom had yeah. had either. Well, the mother yeah. grew up in the countryside also. So at some point she got a fancy education. <laughs> yeah. But um, the one part <laughs> of the Russian dissident She's story fancy. that really rang true for me, however, was the mom deciding to take him home and care for him just because she had read and liked some of his books. <laughs> right, right. I have made a lot of instant decisions about trusting and, and adopting people based on the books they have written. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know this about not, you. Not like any of us have ever taken like Todd McCaffrey home to play video uh, games or something. Well, maybe <laughs> well. Yes. I mean, maybe not video games. <laughs> the The most believable part to me was the crowd. Oh no, that's totally believable. Be acting like the he was a zoo animal because he didn't speak their language. It's exactly what people do. Yes, that was on point for humanity for me. Oh, I was just gonna say that. I think that is actually one of the things I like best about this whole series of stories in this book is because even though there are some outlandish things that that doesn't seem realistic, the behavior of the people keeps ringing very true. Mm-hmm, for sure. Some of the situations are outlandish, but the behavior... Like you can look at these people and go, I know that person. <laughs> yeah. That is exactly, that is exactly <laughs> how they would act. <laughs> yeah. I liked the landslide story the best, but... I liked that story the best because of the way the trees moving were described. That's exactly, yes. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful description. Yeah. The describing the trees as slowly walking down the hill toward the railway line as if they were magical. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. the way a child would see that at first. I, I think at some point the author has seen 
a landslide. Oh yeah, happening definitely. Yeah, I mean the, the the way that she described it, and then their reaction when they realized what was actually happening. That was very well done. That was very well written. Mm-hmm. And also, I now seriously want a red petticoat. I mean, I have a I have a red chainmail skirt that might work. I love petticoats. <laughs> I would wear dresses more often if I could have six or seven petticoats. Amen. <laughs> I might actually wear dresses if I could. If I could wear my my costumes, those were daily wear. I would wear them more often, just because I, I like the spinny skirts. Just wait. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. When I was in the, when I was playing in the SCA, I always had three or four, at least petticoats. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like walking around all day in a big comfy comforter. Which does not work well in Puerto Rico. Mm-mm. No, I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> I, I don't have a really comfy petticoat. I do have a huge scratchy black crinoline. So, Angel, what was your favorite part? For me, it wasn't any of the full stories that I liked best. It was the small moments that snuck up on me and made me go, ooh. Like, after the birthday party, when Bobby snuck back downstairs to get her gifts and be with her gifts, and she saw her mother leaning her head on her arms, and then she walked away saying, she doesn't want me to know, so I won't know. Um, That just... I I actually, (laughs) sorry, after reading that part, I had to put it down and walk away. I I couldn't finish reading for a couple of days because that just hit. You know how I said earlier that I kept identifying with Bobby? Yeah. Um, There was a time after my my parents had split up and my mom was working all those late nights and um, she was doing all the bookkeeping at home. And, um, I had gone to bed, but then I got up for something. And so she was being very honest and she, uh, she was sitting at her desk crying because she didn't know how she was going to pay the house note. And I went back to my room and for Christmas, when I was like three, I'd been given this really cool bank that looked like Cheetah from Tarzan, you know? (laughs) Yeah, And that was my monkey bank and I was always putting my pennies and everything into my monkey bank. And I went and I got my bank and I took it to my mom and I gave it to her so that she would stop crying so that she could use my monkey bank to pay the house note. You know, because as a kid, you don't know how much is a house note. Um, <laughs> that, I've I've paid the rent in quarters before. Um, <laughs> and so that, that scene just, you know, it was just it, it was so real to me. It just yeah. like, and it seemed each chapter had just a few lines like that, um, where it would it would just sneak in this, you know, if you'd have all these grand adventures and all these ridiculous things, and the kids rescuing the day and all this sort of stuff, and then there would be just a few lines here and there that were just so real to me, um, and that's what actually kept me fully engaged with the story, going all through it. Nice. So what do you think the original lessons of the story were? Well, the original re- lesson to the story is probably no matter what happens, the children's are always noble and kind at the end of the day. Sometimes Phyllis is whiny or she speaks without thinking and she's clumsy and her shoes always untied. 
But her siblings love her and try to help her correct her mistakes. You know, they have an extra handkerchief for her or whatever. Bobby can be a little bossy because she's trying to be a grown-up in place of her mother, who's too busy to parent them properly. You know, they don't resent that. They they just compensate. Uh, she spends a lot of time in self-reflection. Peter gets downright mean at one point when they're all having a bad day and he's got a bit of pride. Ms. Nesbitt seemed like she was trying to make her children relatable to her readers while still giving them grand adventures. However, even left to their own devices for weeks and months on end, they still remained dutiful children who tried to be kind and make their mother proud. They didn't turn into feral wild things. <laughs> like I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Nesbitt kind of lived this story in a way in that with the tragedies that had hit her own family, um, she was the woman sitting and writing stories to make ends meet and trying to raise her kid and her husband. He, he hadn't been arrested or anything, but you know, with him having been sick and everything, um, she did have to become this person. So I, I think that might be part of why there's so much that rings true in the story. Um, so it's like the landslide. She actually saw that. Yeah, I think she actually saw something like that. Um, I think the lesson I pulled from the story, um, is the value of embracing breaking out of the outdated traditions while keeping true to your values. Like the way the children remain kind and dedicated to the health and security of the family unit. I, I saw so many lessons slip in between the lines with the ideals of resourcefulness and perseverance and being willing to fight against even the little injustices that pop up in everyday lives. You see not only that you see that not only in the children's actions, but with the young doctor who was poor himself, but willing to create clubs so that people felt able to come to him for the help they needed, even when they couldn't afford it. So he would kind of make this little special payment arrangement so that they wouldn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to the doctor. We can't afford it. Although when the doctor was in the buggy and, and talking to Bobby about the special clubs, that I did get a little nervous there. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a point where I was afraid the story was going to kind of take a Jane Austen turn and Bobby was going <laughs> to end up marrying the doctor in order to solve the family's problems. <laughs> Yeah, I know she was far too young, but given the time period and the age of many of Austin's female characters, let's just say I, I was a little nervous there. Oh, thank God it didn't go in that direction. Yeah, I was just worried that she was going to get in trouble with her mom again for begging. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's move on to what the modern audiences can learn from this story. <laughs> Not marrying children at all. <laughs> yeah, don't marry your 12-year-old off to solve the problem. <laughs> so modern. <laughs> well, it's, oh. it's nice to look at a simpler time. I remember running wild in the woods and the creek when I was a kid before the internet. We didn't have a Nintendo or an Atari like some of the other kids at the time. I mean, we had a PC, but it didn't even, it wouldn't, we didn't even turn it on until after dinner. <laughs> but we didn't live near enough to a park or any sorts of city accommodations that we could walk there or ride our bikes. So we ended up in the woods most of the time, once our chores and schoolwork was done. More kids could benefit from a bit of feral countryside adventuring. Oh my goodness, yes. Although, I have to say, I'm a little bit old. <laughs> <laughs> 
We didn't have Nintendos and Ataris because they hadn't been invented yet. We had three TV <laughs> stations and a lot of books. So <laughs> I have such wonderful memories of running wild in the forests and creating adventure stories for my friends and I to act out. Um, however, I also remember how horrifyingly close we came to losing life and limb on those adventures. <laughs> So I was never all that comfortable allowing my own children to venture quite as far from home and supervision. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I didn't schedule every minute of their childhood, but I did keep them within hearing distance. (laughs) We had an Atari, but I was more likely to be outside than inside playing it. We had a creek that we would go out and play in and, and fish in where we would bring home fish and put them in the freezer. And I don't even know if we ever even ate them. I think I don't remember eating fish, even though we caught the poor things. So I kind of feel Horse bad. sacrifice fish. <laughs> I know. But we were, we were, we would go fishing with hot dogs and bring home these fish on the string lines. And it was like Huck Finn in the middle of the city. You had hot dogs for bait? Man, yeah. eat the hot dogs. Dig up the worms. That's bougie. <laughs> no, I liked worms. I liked worms and hot dogs didn't, didn't, I was only harming the fish, not the worms. Hot dogs, not real meat anyway. Right. The only other place that I ran wild was when we were um, at our grandparents during the, the summer in Oglesby, Texas, a town of 200 people. They were all my cousins. So it's not like I could date anybody there. So we were just running <laughs> wild and there weren't trees it was all just farmland and and hi mom we would just steal corn and watermelon and eat it out in the fields (laughs) (laughs) my mom kept us in in hearing range sort of but she had us whistle trained so our hearing distance was a lot farther oh man that is brilliant i i I totally wish i had thought of doing something like that oh she she would do the whole the whole campfire group and we would go on these field trips you know there's like there's like 50 kids running around you've seen school field trips i know (laughs) so so there'd be like 50 kids running around in red campfire t-shirts and she would blow that whistle and all of a sudden it's like all the kids are right there and all the other (laughs) teachers the other teachers are all out there with their their school groups are going you're a god how do you do this Well, see, we weren't whistle trained when when I was when I was at my grandparents' farm. Um, grandma didn't whistle or anything. She never really called the kids for any reason. But when it was meal time, she would go out on the front porch and she would do this just like this glorious calling of my grandfather's name. And it was it was she was a really great singer. So she would start with this low and would hit this really high note like a, like a like a a Mississippi yodel. And, and it would just, and you could hear it for miles. And she would, she would end on, at the end of his name on this really high piercing note. It reminds me of the McBroom books from my Sid Fleischman, where he would go out and he would call the kids. And I can't remember it now, but he would, he would list off all like 15 kids or whatever, all in just this, this one long word, all their names. Oh no, she never she never called for the grandkids. Whatever we were doing, we were doing, you know. But she would call for grandpa to come in and get his food and we would hear her calling him and we'd be like, "Oh man, we got to get back or there's not going to be anything left to eat." So, <laughs> it's amazing how often food and hunger is what brings kids home. 
<laughs> That's what always brought me home. Well, it is the foundation of the uh, hierarchy of needs. <laughs> <laughs> so any other topics that y'all want to cover? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> by the way, does anyone know if Nesbitt ever wrote that story the mother was working on? You know, the one about the Duchess and the villain and the secret passage and the will? Because that one sounds fun. To my knowledge, she did not. But if it is out there, please, someone let us know. Yes, email us. It's in the show notes. Let us know. We will read it. Thanks for joining us today. Check us out on Patreon. You can help us meet our small goal of breaking even and covering our expenses. Your support helps pay for all of the things that podcasting requires and helps keep this show alive and growing. If you can't afford to support us financially, go give us a good review, subscribe or follow, and share with your friends and family. Feel free to fact check us and offer suggestions to make our show better for you. You can also send us an email at lostinrevisionpodcast at gmail.com. There's a lot more waiting for us all at the end of the road.